So I think we're in for a doozy, as always. Um, he is the author of numerous books and articles on the early American Republic, including the award-winning Missionaries of Republicanism, A Religious History of the Mexican-American War. He is the professor of history and the founding director of Catholic Studies at Aquinas College, and he has a forthcoming book that defends the compatibility of Catholic social teaching with the American experiment. His lecture tonight is titled, A Nation Founded on a Creed, Roman Catholicism, and the American Experiment. And let's give Dr. John Panero a nice, warm, authenticum welcome. Thank you. Thanks again to Michael for inviting me back. And um, you know, my specialty is American history, so of course you'd want to kick off an authenticum lecture series like this with me talking about Lepanto. So anyhow, at least I know what I'm talking about tonight. We'll actually spend our time on American history. And uh, whether, we'll, um, whether authenticum will end with a, well, a bang or a whimper, we'll find out. But thanks for the buildup. Much of what I'm going to talk about is coming uh, out of an upcoming book. It should be, uh, should be out by the end of the year. I don't know the title yet. I won't get royalties on it. But that's okay. Uh, uh, hopefully hopefully you'll, uh, you'll take a look at it uh, when it comes out, and I'll, I'll be, sure to let, uh, be sure to let Michael know more information on that. Um, and so let's start. America, proclaimed Pope St. John Paul II, at an American ballpark in 1995, has always wanted to be the land of the free. Today, he said, the challenge facing America is to find freedom's fulfillment in the truth. This question of freedom and truth and what to do with one's freedom had long been a special challenge for Catholic Americans. The United States of America was a country born in revolution during the Enlightenment often speaking the languages of liberalism and Protestant Christianity at the same time. Even as popes condemned this liberalism and worried that religious liberty would encourage religious indifference, American Protestants argued that the Catholic faith was incompatible with democracy. St. John Paul was aware of this history when it came to American freedom and the Catholic faith. In his short but profound homily, John Paul pressed further on what he meant by finding freedom's fulfillment in the truth. The question of this fulfillment had occupied two previous popes, Pius IX and Gregory XVI, both men of the early to mid-19th century, each of whom had in specific contexts condemned liberalism and certain freedoms on which Americans placed great value. Late in the 19th century, Pope Leo XIII condemned what he called Americanism a censure that had a greater impact on European Catholics than it did on Catholic Americans. But John Paul had not come to Baltimore to condemn Americans. He had come to challenge them. Quote, we must guard the truth that is the condition of authentic freedom, the truth that allows freedom to be fulfilled in goodness, end quote. To what sort of truth was John Paul referring? The truth, he said, that is intrinsic to human life created in God's image and likeness, the truth that is written on the human heart, the truth that can be known by reason and can therefore form the basis of a profound and universal dialogue among people 
about the direction they must give to their lives and to their activities. Sometimes, he said, witnessing to Christ will mean drawing out of a culture the full meaning of its noblest intentions. At other times, witnessing to Christ means challenging that culture, especially when the truth about the human person is under assault. The question of how one ought to live is among the oldest questions of mankind. Democracy adds to this, John Paul claimed, because we citizens have our own determinative role to play toward the common good. John Paul appealed to President Abraham Lincoln to answer the question about how we ought to live together in a democracy. During the Civil War, Lincoln had argued that America's real roots were to be found in the claim that, quote, all men are created equal, end quote. America did have a founding, thought Lincoln, and its most important founding claim, its creed, if you will, was to be found in Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. G.K. Chesterton argues that Jefferson in the Declaration, quote, dogmatically bases all rights on the fact that God created all men equal. There is no basis for democracy except in a dogma about the divine origin of man. It was in Lincoln's argument that St. John Paul found the answer for late 20th century American soul searching. Importantly, this answer turned out to be the same Christian anthropology proposed by the Catholic Church. To quote John Paul again, it's easy to give a talk when you just keep quoting John Paul. <laughs> President Lincoln's question is no less a question for the present generation of Americans. Democracy cannot be sustained without and he emphasized a shared commitment to certain moral truths about the human person and the human community. He then reminded Americans that, quote, freedom consists not in doing what we like, but in having the right to do what we ought, end quote. The truths about the human person, and thus also about the human community, that are present in some degree, to some degree, in the words of Jefferson and Lincoln, are seen at their fullest extent and Catholic social teaching. This is why Chesterton referred to democracy as mystical democracy, and why he argued that as long as the American, to quote him, as long as the American democracy becomes or remains Catholic and Christian, that democracy will remain democratic. Insofar as it does not, it will become wildly and wickedly undemocratic. Catholic social teaching as it has developed since Pope Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum, is rooted in three assumptions about the human person and natural law. First, the human person has transcendent value. Second, because of this, the good of the person cannot be subordinated to other goods. Third, it follows that social structures, governmental or otherwise, must either be ordered to this good or at least not interfere with it. Is the American political order compatible with Catholicism and its social doctrine? And here I'll take one of those pauses. And I'll give you the answer that you might expect from an academic. Even as nice of a one as, my, as Mike made me sound. Um, <laughs> The answer rests on what compatibility means. <laughs> it didn't seem funny when I wrote it, but it seems funny now. <laughs> no political order 
is fully compatible with Catholicism or the Christian dispensation but heaven. Not even that great civilization called Christendom that produced Dante, St. Francis of Assisi, and St. Thomas Aquinas, my college's namesake. Yet John Paul fairly clearly found great promise in America, in its democracy, in its religious freedom, and in the claims made by Lincoln regarding human equality. John Paul knew that the talk of compatibility with democracy is not to approve every decision the demos, the people, make. Any more than our freedom of the will means God approves every decision we make. Neither was Thomas Aquinas making a case for anarchy when he argued that not everything that is immoral should be illegal. Nor was he arguing for religious indifference when he wrote of tolerating non-Christian rights, quote, either on account of some good that ensues therefrom or because of some evil avoided, end quote. Religious toleration was not a creation of Enlightenment liberals or of dignitatis humanae. It had a long heritage in the American colonies and in the early republic. It also was long part of the Catholic tradition even when not practiced. As I explain in the forthcoming book, as I hope I explain in the forthcoming book, the history of the United States played a key role in the development of the magisterial teaching on religious liberty that produced dignitatis humanae. The history of the United States marked a genuine development of human understanding that liberty, and religious liberty specifically, could play a preservative and stable influence on societal order rather than a destructive one. In the words of the Second Vatican Council document itself, quote, in order that relationships of peace and harmony be established and maintained within the whole of mankind, it is necessary that religious freedom be everywhere provided with an effective constitutional guarantee and that respect be shown for the high duty and right of man freely to lead his religious life in society." End quote. The United States was not founded with a creedal blueprint drawn up by Enlightenment liberals indifferent, indifferent to and skeptical of religion. Rather, freedom of religion in America developed as a part of a long struggle for liberty and a lived experience with its blessings. It was an imperfect inheritance, eventually protected by the Constitution and then enhanced by practice. The American order was not founded upon ideology, writes Russell Kirk. It was not manufactured, rather it grew. The Catholic Church gives no prescription for a political order for Christians. Christianity has flourished under deep oppression, Rome before 313, for example, and it is atrophied in states where crown and altar were unified. St. Augustine argued that the true end of the city of man is the maintenance of peace and the perpetuation of justice on earth. As a good, this is in agreement with the highest good of mankind, the city of God. The state's most appropriate role is to ward against the various forces of destruction so that people might be free to reach their end in God. This heavenly city, writes Augustine, then while it sojourns on earth, calls citizens out of all nations and gathers together a society of pilgrims of all languages, not scrupling about diversities in manners, laws, and institutions. It therefore is so far from rescinding and abolishing these diversities that it even preserves and adapts them, so long only 
as no hindrance to the worship of the one supreme and true God is thus introduced. In Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville draws on St. Augustine to argue that, quote, if the human mind is allowed to follow its own bent, it will regulate political society and the city of God in the same uniform manner and will, I dare say, seek to harmonize earth and heaven. End quote. If I'm created free in order to seek and know the truth, how am I supposed to live? What should society look like? Well, in determining whether Catholicism is compatible with the American experiment in self-government, we first need to determine, I think, whether America really was founded on a creed. And if so, of course, what creed? Was America doomed to fail from its inception because it had a hard founding rooted in a poisonous, false anthropology? Do the culture of death and what Pope Francis calls a throwaway culture owe their existence not to human sin and to the ascent of a post-Christian vision of progress, but rather to a small set of faulty ideas instantiated in the body politic by the founding fathers? Conversely, as John Courtney Murray argued, did the founders build better than they knew? He was quoting the American bishops, by the way. Drawing not on individualistic rights and Jacobin radicalism for their creed, but rather on their own experience and a natural law discernible through reason with clear links to the Catholic tradition. Finally, what if there was no hard founding at all, that is, no consciously wrought creed as such, but rather the preservation and codification of ancient traditions with links to the classical and Christian worlds? Late 18th century America was a time when civic republicanism meshed healthily in tension with Christian teaching, with the desire for virtue, and nearly two centuries of English colonial experience. So to paraphrase St. John Paul, we want to find out whether the American experiment is an, is an experiment in freedom only or an experiment of freedom and truth. This is probably where I should mention that my watch broke or it kind of ran out of batteries as I was sitting here. Thank you for resetting it, but it still says 707, so um, it's all right. It's all right. Leonard, when you nod off, I'll know it's time to, time to move on, okay? The United States was the first large republic since ancient Rome. Even as liberal revolutions during the 19th century repeatedly failed in Europe and in the Americas, the United States thrived, prospered, and grew. It did so even in spite of a bloody civil war in the 1860s. European revolutions seemed bent on the destruction of society and religion. Visitors to the United States quickly found that these impulses were almost non-existent among Americans. Indeed, Tocqueville credited Americans what he called our respect for religion as, quote, the greatest guarantee of the state's stability and the safety of individuals, end quote. Americans prudently had not adopted in toto what Tocqueville calls the boldest political doctrines of theories of 18th century philosophers. Instead, while there was no other country where these doctrines could be more rigorously instituted, according to Tocqueville, than in America, Quote, anti-religious doctrines exclusively have never been able to see the light of day in America, 
even on behalf of the unlimited liberty of the press, end quote. According to William B. Allen, Tocqueville means that Americans adopted these theories up to a point but stopped, whereas the French did not stop, but instead attacked religion ferociously. Consideration of the American founding is best divided into two schools of thought, at least I think so. Chesterton laid out the first of these when he toured the United States in 1921 and again in 1930. He brought with him his sensibilities as both an Englishman and a Catholic, officially joining the Catholic Church one year after his first visit. Like Charles Dickens and Lord Acton before him, he wrote about his time in America. In fact, he wrote one book for each trip. What I Saw in America was the first one, and Sidelights on New London and Newer York. And those who have read Chesterton about America usually have read the first, but sometimes not too many have read, uh, read the last. Um, along with these came many columns that he wrote during his visits for the Illustrated London News. So if you want to find a lot of Chesterton's thoughts on America, you would dig through those, those columns too. And what I saw in America, Chesterton wrote, America is the only nation in the world that is founded on a creed, which is where the title of tonight's talk comes from. That creed is set forth with dogmatic and even theological lucidity in the Declaration of Independence, perhaps the only piece of practical politics that is also theoretical politics and also great literature. It enunciates that all men are equal in their claim to justice, that governments exist to give them that justice, and that their authority for that reason is just. It certainly does condemn anarchism, and it does also by inference condemn atheism, since it clearly names the creator as the ultimate authority from whom these equal rights are derived. So America, according to Chesterton, had a founding. That is a well-documented moment in time wherein a nation was created. The founding, this founding, Chesterton argued, occurred on the basis of very specific ideas about justice and about equality and about the human person. John Courtney Murray agreed with Chesterton about what the Jesuit called the American proposition. He argued, and we hold these truths, that, quote, the American proposition rests on the forthright assertion of a realist epistemology. I'm glad he cleared that up for us, end quote. In other words, universal truths about mankind that are discernible through reason. That is what formed the foundation of American society and government. And what John Paul in his 1995 Camden Yards homily referred to as, quote, the, the truth that can be known by reason and can therefore form the basis of a profound and universal dialogue. How different that is than a culture and society rooted in positivistic hypotheses, utilitarian calculations, idyllic dreams, or ideological claims. If this assertion is denied, wrote Murray in 1960, quote, the American proposition is, I think, eviscerated at one stroke, end quote. Francis Cardinal George criticizes Murray for what he calls his agnostic solution of too strictly separating religion and politics. Murray, says George, quoting him, sees the two phrases of the First Amendment not as articles of faith, 
but as articles of peace. They are political, not theological. And so in Murray's mind, this means that they make no claims on Catholics who in any case are called to transform any culture in which they live. This is, George says, quote, a neo-scholastic, two-tiered conception of nature and grace. If Dr. Wagner's here, you can explain to me what that means afterward. (laughs) Out of the Suarezian Jesuit tradition, that too. (laughs) Suarez is bad, I don't know if you heard that. Can you imagine a college in the Suarezian Jesuit tradition? Never mind. Uh, George thinks it is too sharp in its, quote, delineation between the natural and the supernatural. If such a bald demarcation is true of the American founding, George is right to argue that this would undermine freedom and produce what St. John Paul called the culture of death. Quoting George, without correlation to truths rooted in nature and in God, Human freedom becomes license or alternatively acquiesces in state tyranny. Where George sees, I don't know why I did that. (laughs) This fine new room and there's no clock. Okay. It reminds me of when Father Barron came to speak for the Catholic Studies Speaker Series at Aquinas a, a few years ago, and when he went to motion to a, to a crucifix. And, he, and it was the only room on the whole campus without one, but uh, President Oliveris, God bless his soul, there was the biggest crucifix I've seen outside of our new chapel in that, in that room, you know, maybe a week later. Thank you for the watch. Where George sees a rupture, Murray sees development. Murray argues that Americans of the founding era did believe in a transcendent order and the existence of knowable truths. Once known, these truths could be integrated into society so that men might, quote, dwell in dignity, peace, unity, justice, well-being, freedom, end quote. Indeed, they were already doing so by the 1760s. Between 1775 and 1783, Americans fought a revolution to preserve this free society in the face of a creeping tyranny. These truths about the person buttressed American society. They gave it a dynamism, not only as a republic, but more importantly as a republic of Christians who believed in popular sovereignty precisely because they were Christians. Americans, Murray said, assumed that citizens could live a life of reason, exercise their birthright and freedom, and assume responsibility for public affairs. Consequently, they founded a a limited national government meant only to promote the conditions necessary for peace, justice, and prosperity so that the real work of mankind, the spiritual task of knowing, loving, and serving God might go ahead. The primary condition was freedom. Murray acknowledged Catholic condemnations of aspects of the American political theory but argued that the condemnation applied to, in his words, the type of government based on radically rationalist principles that emerged from the French Revolution. A condemnation of the American idea is implied only because there is an official failure to take explicit account of the fact that the American political system and its institutions are not revolutionary and Jacobin and Jacobin in inspiration. Like Tocqueville before him, 
Murray wisely discerned the crucial difference between the American and French revolutions. There are scholars who, like Murray and Chesterton, accept the, evident, the existence of an American founding, but who disagree with them over its nature. Instead, they argue that it was a hard founding based almost entirely on Enlightenment principles and the ways that the first French Revolution was. The best current example of this, the best current example of this is Patrick Deneen and why liberalism failed. Deneen calls the United States, quote, the first nation founded by the explicit embrace of liberal philosophy, whose citizenry is shaped almost entirely by its commitments and vision. End quote. He argues that the liberalism promoted by the founders, quote, above all advances a new understanding of liberty, end quote. The old definition of liberty, rooted in Greece, Rome, and Christendom, relied on individual virtue in search of the common good. This ancient definition, he says, was thrust aside by the unholy trinity of Thomas Hobbes, Francis Bacon, and John Locke for one steeped in radical self-interest and appetite. Culture contains the customs and traditions that limit individuals' appetites, so it would need to be destroyed. Even nature's limits would need to be overcome. Autonomous individuals are unlikely to love their own place, for their place might be what is stifling their autonomy. As the autonomous individual does not want to kneel before the past, neither does he want to be mindful of the future. His is an eternal present, where the state guarantees fulfillment of his wildest desires, even when those desires are unnatural, unwise, or both. In the end, according to Dedede, only a strong and centralized state can make this kind of libertine life possible. This is the liberalism, says Dedede, that was, and I quote him, first instantiated as a political experiment by the founders of the American Liberal Republic. End quote. And because this liberalism was based on the false anthropology of radical human autonomy and not on the same Christian anthropology that gave birth to concepts like liberty and virtue in the first place, the American experiment was doomed to fail. The liberated individual would require the controlling state, says Deneen, to fulfill his passions or confirm him in his passivity, all the while chipping away at liberalism's foundations. The founders unwisely took for granted the continuation of all those things that liberalism is designed to destroy, the health and continuity of families, schools, and communities. This might be intellectual history, and indeed, Deneen is at his best in his explanation of modernity and America's what he calls the liberal conservatives and the conservative liberals. But his telling of the founding is not the fulsome and complex history of human events. As Samuel Goldman argues in his critique of why liberalism failed, there is an ahistorical argument of inevitability when we attribute, quote, profound social and political changes to arguments and philosophical treatises, end quote. As Goldman puts it, it may be true that the philosophical currents that Deneen traces back to Bacon were necessary conditions for the American founding, but they were neither sufficient nor determinative. In only acknowledging these intellectual factors, we risk says Goldman, a kind of inverted Whig history. That is, the Whigs had looked at their secularized theory of progress, finding decline and corruption where liberals expected progress. 
Such ahistorical analysis neglects the ways in which the American Republic was not founded at all, and the ways in which its classical republicanism and diversity of Christians have shaped and continue to transform its culture. As long as America's Christian culture and civic republicanism tempered the individualistic and statist excesses of liberalism, it would be hard to find a place that has been friendlier to a rightly ordered liberty. And this leads us to the second main school of thought we must consider when assessing the compatibility of the American experiment with Catholicism. One that is neither as ahistorical or theory-driven as Deneen's in its condemnation of American democracy, nor as committed to the idea of a hard founding as Murray's is when praising the American proposition. Russell Kirk is the best example of the second school of thought, which rejects the idea of a hard American founding. Kirk believed that the United States was exceptional and that it had a mission. And the mission was no programmatic quest for a utopia based on the passing ideology of an age. Rather, it was a mission to see if a self-governed people could balance liberty with order, under law, and to the maximization of justice. Justice, order, and freedom, Kirk claimed, are the three cardinal ideas that dominated the minds of the founders of our republic. So then, Kirk held that America was not a new creation born of Enlightenment liberalism. Rather, it was the preservation of a complex, long-developed civilization rooted in London, yes, but also in the political, philosophical, and moral traditions of Athens, of Jerusalem, and of Rome. In essence, Americans had engaged in a revolution not to promote radical ideologies or to defend universal egalitarian claims, but to preserve their traditional liberties. Good order in such a society would rely more on virtue and tradition than on state power. For Americans knew too well already how easily the power of a state or of a state church could be abused. The next step for Americans was to codify their order in a constitution to preserve and per perpetuate a judicious balance between liberty and order. There is little in the order codified in the Constitution that is intrinsically opposed to Catholic social teaching. Were the Constitution not a compromise made by people with a Christian worldview, recognizing the importance of virtue, but rather an ideological blueprint based on a faulty anthropology of radical individual autonomy, this would not be the case. A country based on a creed can have a faulty creed capable of bringing down the whole machine if the creed is not in accord with human nature. Communism is the most obvious example, which is why state socialism remains the only system condemned by the magisterial teaching of the Catholic Church. A country speaking in creedal terms and the classical vocabulary of virtue, but rooted in its own long experience with liberty, can make do with an imperfect but best possible polity. The United States was no less than a genuine development of Christian, or Western civilization, specifically English civilization. The framers combined their own lived experience as a free and religious people with English common law traditions, English constitutionalism, end quote, and to their English legacy, the founders of our republic added Roman features, says Kirk. The government of the city of man would do the minimum necessary to preserve order, while the city of God would be left to free to transform culture and society. In such a culture, Catholics no doubt could provide a Christian witness, 
quoting John Paul again, a Christian witness drawing out the full meaning of its noblest intentions. And those in several chapters are things I explore in the book, the Declaration, the Constitution, common law traditions, religious liberty especially. Tocqueville, a Catholic, noted that Catholics in America were fervent believers and practitioners of their religion at the same time they were, as he called them, the most Republican and Democratic class. Quoting Tocqueville, in my opinion, it would be wrong to see the Catholic religion as a natural opponent of democracy. Catholicism seems to me, on the contrary, to be one of the most supportive of the equality of social conditions. It makes no compromise with anyone and applies the same standard to each person. It likes to blend all social classes at the foot of the same altar. <clears throat> Catholicism might look like monarchy, said Tocqueville, but, quote, remove the prince and the conditions are more equal than in republics. Once the priests are not part of government, they and their flock are the most likely to carry their beliefs into politics. Catholics are, in short, Tocqueville says, the most obedient believers and the most independent citizens. Is the American experiment so intrinsically incompatible with the Catholic faith the Catholics should wash their hands of it and shake its dust from their feet? Is redeeming the time, to quote St. Paul, a waste of time for Catholic Americans? The Catholic, an English historian, Christopher Dawson, who spent several years at the end of his life in the United States, did not think so. Despite what he called the pressure of secularization, he wrote in 1961, at the same time, America still possesses the priceless advantages of educational and intellectual freedom so that we are still free to work and plan for the restoration of Christian culture, end quote. America, Dawson believed, held the best prospect for the development of a Catholic culture. Why? Because of the combination of freedom, democracy, and a much richer cultural inheritance than anything that American Protestants knew. Catholics were uniquely poised to engage their nation's norms without capitulating to currently prevalent secularism. Dawson believed in the transformative power of Catholicism. America, as G.K. Chesterton pointed out, is indeed beholden to some ideas, ideas that have been elaborated upon or abused or rejected over the past 240 years. But I think this is not the same as a founding, if by founding we mean a fashioning out of whole cloth a new nation based on liberal democracy as defined by a small group of men detached from history and wholly shaped by those Enlightenment ideals contrary to the classical and Christian heritage of Western civilization. American ideas of human freedom tended to be rooted in the Christian worldview of the human person as intrinsically dignified with the right to life and liberty. America may be a country with a creed, as Chesterton said, but it was and is much more than that. As it turns out, Chesterton noticed this too. Quote, the real quality of America is much more subtle and complex than this, and is mixed not only of good and bad and rational and mystical, but also of old and new. 
This is what makes the task of tracing the true proportions of American life so interesting and so impossible, end quote. Chesterton then, as did Russell Kirk later, recognized that the best America was the one that the Americans, again, had built better than they knew. This was no creedal country in the sense of an ideological blueprint, wherein one anthropological air in the blueprint would cause the whole edifice to crumble. This was the fruit of human experience, for good and ill, with both great promise and great potential peril. Chesterton noticed as, noted as much. So far as that democracy, Chesterton writes, and what I saw in America, becomes or remains Catholic and Christian, that democracy will remain democratic. Insofar as it does not, it will become wildly and wickedly undemocratic. Its rich will riot with brutal indifference far beyond the feeble feudalism which retains some shadow of responsibility or at least of patronage. Its wage slaves will either seek, sink into heathen slavery or seek relief in theories that are destructive not only in method but in aim, since they are but the negations of the human appetites of property and personality. 18th century ideals formulated in 18th century language have no longer in themselves the power to hold all these pagan passions back. Even those documents depended upon deism. Men will more and more realize that there is no meaning in democracy if there is no meaning in anything, and that there is no meaning in anything if the universe has not a center of significance and an authority that is the author of our rights. In this sense, the creed does turn out to be a creed, but it's not a particularly 18th century English one, nor is it an ideological dogma, at least not at its roots. Its foundation, rather, lies in the classical and Christian heritage of the West. The ancients and medievals are not poster children for authentic self-government, the practice of virtue, the proper exercise of liberty, and the balance of the individual with the community even if the best among them promoted these ideas. We ought not be too nostalgic for their age. We certainly would not say that Roman Catholicism is incompatible with monarchy or aristocracy because of the failures of monarchs, any more than we would argue that Roman Catholicism is incompatible with the papacy due to the grim machinations and personal infidelities of certain popes. One fundamental point of Catholic social teaching is that, quote, the coming of the kingdom of God cannot be discerned in the perspective of a determined and definitive social, economic, or political organization. That's from the Compendium of Catholic Social Doctrine. Nor does the church offer a one-size-fits-all social democratic blueprint. In the words of John Paul II, since it is not an ideology, the Christian faith does not presume to imprison changing socio-political realities in a rigid schema. And it recognizes that human life is realized in history in conditions that are diverse and imperfect. Furthermore, in constantly reaffirming the transcendent dignity of the person, the church's method is always that of respect for freedom. America's Catholic critics need to recognize that the only authentic instantiation of the kingdom of God is heaven. All else is to be sanctified and transformed by Catholics, working with 
and tried to expand what is well and good. So, was the United States built on a creed? Yes, in a sense, but creeds are symbols of deeper beliefs. And the American creed was never an ideology pregnant with inevitable failure. Chesterton recognized this, as did St. John Paul II. Catholic critics of American democracy should recognize it as well, so that people of goodwill might redeem the time in a manner suited to our time. Thank you.